Welcome back to the Strategies for Youth podcast series. I am David Walker, and I'm the Training and Operations Director for Strategies for Youth. In this episode, we will be exploring the importance of de-escalation when interacting with people as a law enforcement officer. While this will focus primarily on interactions with teens and young adults, the tactics presented can also be applied to just about anyone. With that said, however, I do want to give you our standard disclosure. The information Strategies for Youth shares in its trainings and in these podcasts is not intended to replace or supersede the training you've received from your agency and academy training. The information provided is not intended to tell you how to do your job. It is intended to help you do your job better and to increase your safety. In this episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Brittany Patterson, Assistant Professor with the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Ian Barlow, a detective for the Metro Transit Police Department in Washington, D.C., and Lieutenant Dan Nelson from the Seattle, Washington Police Department. Dr. Patterson will share the science behind why teens and young adults are prone to escalated reactions. She'll talk about what it is about adolescent and young adult brains that requires more focus on de-escalation, and she'll suggest some best practices. Detective Barlow and Lieutenant Nelson will then each share their experience demonstrating how they've put the best practices suggested by Dr. Patterson to work. Please note that due to the current restrictions placed on many of us because of COVID-19, we're recording this podcast from several different locations. You may hear a difference in the sound quality, but please be assured it's us, not you. Dr. Patterson? Thank you, David, for inviting me to contribute to this important discussion. My name is Dr. Brittany Patterson, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. As David mentioned, I will be speaking to features of the adolescent and young adult brain that can impact behaviors and decision-making. Research has long established that our brains are not fully developed until the mid to late 20s. Therefore, it's reasonable to suspect that the brain isn't working optimally until somewhere between the age of 25 and 30. Additionally relevant is the manner in which the brain develops. Our brain is developed from the back to the front. For example, the cerebellum is a brain structure that develops early in life to support critical functioning such as crawling and walking in young children. Toward the front of the brain is the frontal lobe, and it is associated with more sophisticated skills and abilities such as forward planning, complex problem solving, emotion inhibition, and perspective taking. So why is this information important? This knowledge is critical because though adolescents and young adults appear adult-like in terms of physical stature and language used in an interaction, their brains are not fully developed. And this contributes to behaviors and decision-making while engaging with you. During the period of adolescence and young adulthood specifically, the brain is actually under massive construction. In fact, I invite listeners to envision a construction site on a road, riddled with barriers and derailments necessitating slow and cautious navigation. While navigation of construction sites can be challenging, it's a temporary state and the process results in a significantly improved and more efficient travel system. Similarly, the youth brain will undergo tremendous maturity during the period of adolescence and they will ultimately function better for it. However, the process does take time. I want to highlight another key development that occurs during adolescence, 
The amygdala is a notable brain structure undergoing considerable change during adolescence and young adulthood years. This brain structure is located in the frontal region of the temporal lobe and is responsible for sensing the type and degree of feelings an individual is, an individual is experiencing. Importantly, research demonstrates that during this developmental period, adolescents rely more on this section of the brain when interpreting feelings of others and are susceptible to identifying negative emotions in others more commonly and being inaccurate more often. Similarly, research has been done on adult brains that are fully functioning. And the difference is that adult brains rely on the frontal lobe to interpret the feelings of others, making them more accurate in their interpretation. Paired with the influences of puberty, an associated surge of hormones that occurs during this time, adolescents and young adults are primed for interpreting and reacting to interactions in more negative ways. Another imperative understanding is that adolescence is a period of development characterized by increased reward-seeking behavior. Thus, adolescents commonly pursue highly motivating, rewarding experiences that require minimal or low effort. In turn, this developmental period is also marked by increased risky behavior, such as attempting dangerous stunts, illegal use of drugs, and participating in criminal activities. Not surprisingly, inclination toward highly motivating, rewarding experiences contribute to increased likelihood of adolescents and young adults encountering individuals like yourself, law enforcement professionals. At this point, listeners are likely asking themselves, well, what is the role of the frontal lobe during this developmental period? Well, the frontal lobe is intact, and adolescents and young adults have the ability to use it. When external and internal conditions are safe and calm, adolescents may be more likely to apply problem-solving, planning, and perspective-taking skills. However, again, the frontal lobe is not yet fully developed, and it also is not the structure that adolescents are going to depend on more readily. In situations that are perceived as more difficult or emotionally charged, again, adolescents and young adults are far more likely to rely on the amygdala to interpret and respond to stimuli. So what happens when we act or make decisions in the height of emotionally charged situations? Typically, the outcome is not optimal, or we acknowledge at some point that chosen behaviors and decisions would have been different and better had we been calmer, or had we had more time to think about potential solutions to the problem. Understanding that the brains of adolescents and young adults are not fully developed and some of the implications in terms of decision-making makes it very clear to us that adolescents and young adults depend on you and us, adults with more fully developed brains, to potentially de-escalate really difficult situations. So what strategies can law enforcement professionals employ to potentially de-escalate a difficult encounter? Recommendation number one, acknowledge biases and intention. Everyone has biases, and these beliefs and attitudes about others affect our personal decision-making and our, our interactions with others, whether we realize it or not. 
Additionally, our intention for engaging in any interaction matters. If your attitudes and beliefs toward adolescents are generally positive and you intend to de-escalate the situation, your mannerisms and approach will communicate this stance. This leads me to the next recommendation. Recommendation number two, assess and modify your nonverbals. As humans, the majority of our communication is actually nonverbal in nature, and it is essential that nonverbal cues match stated intentions. It may be helpful to ask yourself some of the following questions and to make adjustments as needed. How close are you standing to the individual? Allowing for more space between you and the other person may help to facilitate de-escalation. Where are your hands placed? Relaxed arms and hands in neutral positions are perceived as less threatening, whereas hands placed near or on a weapon are likely to increase fears and escalate a situation. What is your facial expression indicating? Again, adolescents and young adults are more likely to identify negative emotions in others. Thus, maintaining neutral to positive facial expressions, as appropriate, may promote de-escalation. Recommendation number three, communicate calmly and transparently. Upon approach, of a law enforcement person, youth and young adults may be yelling, screaming, or even swearing. Clearly, they're in a heightened state of emotion, meaning they're not likely to engage their frontal lobe and higher order decision-making skills. And that can contribute to poor decision-making behaviors. They need you to maintain a calm tone and level of voice. And if your intention is to truly de-escalate the situation, that's the commitment that you are willing to make. Additionally, similar to the approach of a construction site, adolescents and young adults need you to deliver information slowly, with small pieces of information at a time and intentionally, especially if they're in a heightened emotional state. Finally, Transparency while communicating to the extent possible is critical if the intention is to de-escalate. This is particularly true for individuals representing groups frequently exposed to racism and discrimination. To the extent possible, calmly and clearly communicate your intention. For example, my intention is to keep you safe. Additionally, explain further the reason for the encounter what is needed from the individual, and what they can expect from you. Having access to this information promotes safe, safety and helps the receiver to decide whether or not they will receive fair treatment, even if they're ultimately penalized for unlawful behavior. Recommendation number four, listen and express empathy. This is particularly important for adolescents and young adults that are escalated upon encounter. They are communicating verbally and non-verbally. And your verbal observation or reflection of their needs can help to bring them down from an escalated state. Saying things like, I can see you're agitated. Or, I hear you saying that someone hurt your child. Or, I hear you saying that you are scared helps the person on the other end understand that you are attempting to feed them 
as someone who also deserves support and care in a challenging situation. Again, strategies like the aforementioned can help with the escalating situations. As you will hear from two active duty law enforcement professionals, use of the previously described tools can be very effective. Now, I will say, these strategies will not work 100% of the time. But if priority implementation of non-physical intervention tools such as the above are your go-to strategies, you can greatly increase the likelihood that you will be successful in de-escalating a challenging situation and ultimately you will likely protect many more lives in the process. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my segment and now I hand it off to our law enforcement professionals. Thank you, Dr. Patterson. Let's hear now from Lieutenant Nelson from the Seattle Police Department as he shares an example of how he used the principles presented on a call that could have easily continued to escalate without Lieutenant Nelson's thoughtful and honest approach with the subject. Thank you. I am Dan Nelson and I've worked for the Seattle Police Department the last 15 years. During my time, I have worked a variety of assignments at different ranks, including time spent with our crisis response unit. A couple years ago, I was working as an officer assigned to the crisis response unit while responding to a report of an assault. As I arrived at the call, I learned that a couple, John and Jane, both 19 years old, were attending couples counseling at a local church. The couple had a two-week-old child in common who was with them at the counseling session. During the session, John became enraged because he believed their child should only be fed goat's milk, which went against Jane's beliefs. John became so angry, he ended up punching Jane, as well as the counselor, grabbing the infant child and proceeding to barricade himself in a doorway, which was located on the exterior of the church. I, along with several additional officers, arrived to investigate the crime and ensure the safety of the infant. During my first interaction with John, he was extremely angry, hostile, and physically animated, which was alarming considering that he was still holding the two-week-old, who was being tussled about through John's movements. Instead of immediately focusing on a tactical strategy, I began speaking with John. I used a calm, clear voice, outlining what I was observing and asking about his perceptions of the incident. Through all of his emotions, I could see that John cared deeply for his child. I began making small talk with John, giving him space to vent his emotion, frustration, and explain his point of view. Through time, John admitted that he, quote, flew off the handle because he, quote, did not feel heard and that he believed his parenting opinions were not, quote, seen as viable options. After several minutes of venting and me meeting him with empathy, John began to realize what he had done and how his actions could be impacting the safety and welfare of his son. It was clear that John deeply loved his child and only wanted the best for him. Throughout our contact, John would lightly kiss his son on the forehead and rock him back and forth. John asked if I would return his son to Jane if he placed him in his car seat. I assured him that I would. John began to ask about what would happen to him after surrendering his child. I explained that he had committed two different assaults, one of which involved a person he was in a relationship with, which required a mandatory arrest and booking under Washington state law for domestic violence. So he would be taken into custody. John asked a series of questions about the arrest process, where he would be going, and what would occur during his court proceedings. I opened a conversation around his questions and offered the best answers I could all while keeping the tone of the dialogue completely conversational 
and not overly authoritative. I was honest and direct, not making light of the situation, nor did I make any promises that I couldn't keep. After getting his questions answered and establishing what his surrender strategy would look like, John placed his son in the car seat and surrendered himself. The entire incident was resolved without force or additional harm through the application of active listening principles and meeting John where he was at with empathy. That was an excellent example of demonstrating empathy through a calm, honest, and direct approach that was focused on reducing the anxiety being felt by the young man who knew he had done something wrong and was worried about the impact it would have on his young child. Now we're going to hear from Detective Barlow from the Washington, D.C. Metro Transit Police Department. What I appreciate about Detective Barlow's story is the point he makes about his evolution as a police officer based on his work and life experiences. Detective Barlow? Thank you, David, and thank you for the opportunity to speak about this important topic. For perspective, I've been a police officer for approximately 15 years, and I've been a detective for nearly eight of those years. A vast majority of violent crime I investigate involves both the juvenile victims and juvenile suspects. There is no singular case experience that I intend to bring forth for discussion today because an isolated incident of de-escalation success doesn't benefit anyone in my eyes. Instead, I wanted to speak about some things that I have done countless times that I believe are relatively simple in nature, but effective. I also wanted to first offer a disclaimer in that I am not the same cop I was when I started at 24. At that age, I wasn't looking to de-escalate anything. Looking back, I probably looked to escalate more than de-escalate. The ability to de-escalate came with time, not only as a police officer, but as a human being. I'm now 38 years old. I have my own family. I've suffered through the loss of a loved one and have a deeper appreciation of life than I did when I first started. I do not believe I am unique in this way, and this perspective may assist others in knowing that cops, like many other human beings, have the ability to evolve, that evolution can be for good, but it can also be for bad. I have found that telling the truth about a situation often can be a simple de-escalation tool. Telling a juvenile whether they are detained or under arrest. Telling a parent who is on the scene of their child's arrest what their child is being charged with and where they are going. Calling the parent once the preliminary investigation is over or a custodial interview is over and providing further clarity about the charges or the court process. Telling a school administrator what is happening versus being secretive when you are arresting a juvenile on or near school grounds. When I am forthcoming and they can understand what is happening, it often deflates a huge amount of anxiety most people have with police encounters. In the same line of thinking, I think far too often, cops treat parents or school administrators as adversaries when often the opposite is true. I have found that often a parent or school administrator can be the voice of reason others will listen to when my voice doesn't have the credibility to quell a situation. When I am honest with juvenile suspects, parents, and school administrators, I am also building a connection for the potential next endeavor that could be the next day or the next year. Being honest carries so much weight in our profession. As important as it is to be honest, 
it is equally important not to lie. A lie which can be proved false immediately on the scene of a police investigation can prove to be incendiary. When a police officer lies about why a suspect is stopped or lies about the overall evidence about a case to a suspect, a juvenile suspect, or a parent, that officer has escalated that situation and will undoubtedly make the next encounter that juvenile or that parent has with the police a much more negative one and harder to de-escalate. When it comes to the hostile relations with the community, I have found that that hostility may have nothing to do with the current scenario and everything to do with the lack of candor shown in previous law enforcement encounters. Counter hostility with calm, clear, concise words. If a juvenile is screaming at me, I don't respond by screaming back. I never yell at a suspect. I often find younger cops are willing to go toe-to-toe with juveniles both in volume and language, and this accomplishes nothing. Remember my disclaimer. I was the younger officer at one point, and it got me nowhere. When I am calm with a juvenile who is not, and I am speaking to them, explaining things often, they will lower their volume, and their peers will stop talking too, even if this is only momentarily because they are trying to hear what I'm saying as well. If I have an officer on scene displaying loud or boisterous behavior themselves, I make it my mission to find something for them to do. Take them out of the equation and give them a task related to the investigation. Give your peers something to do that is police-related versus maintaining custody and control of your juvenile suspect. Once you have made the decision to put the cuffs on, your whole mindset should shift to the process of how you're going to write the probable cause, how you're going to approach an interview if you need to do one, and what else needs to be done on scene, whether it's canvassing for physical evidence, uh, cameras, system surveillances. You know, if you're going to do the exact opposite of this and escalate things with your words and actions, you are ultimately taking away precious time from the investigation. What a great distinction that is. Being honest by taking a calm and clear approach to explaining your view of the situation and what the potential consequences might be is key to reducing anxiety and an escalated response. The difference between being honest and telling the truth is subtle but important. I also appreciate what both officers said about the importance of building relationships. So let's recap. Adolescent brains are not fully developed and the last part to mature is what we wish they had during our encounters with them. Intention matters. If you walk into an encounter with the intent to de-escalate or to avoid further escalation, your facial expressions, body language, and approach will follow suit. Remember to pay attention to your nonverbal responses during interactions. Teens and young adults are more likely to see anger and accusation in adult responses even when it's not there. So make sure you aren't inadvertently sending the wrong signal. Stay calm. Sometimes easier said than done, but still important. Demonstrate the behavior you want from the person you are interacting with. Finally, simply listening and acknowledging the fears, frustrations, and anger of the person can go a long way towards demonstrating empathy. And empathy may be what the individual at that time needs the most. 
Thank you again to Dr. Patterson, Lieutenant Nelson, and Detective Barlow for their help with this podcast. We hope you found it to be useful and informative. We look forward to seeing you at our next episode. And please remember, if you have ideas that you would like to have us explore further, please email us at info at strategiesforyouth.org. And also please visit www.strategiesforyouth.org for more information about our programs. Until next time, stay safe.